Hello. This is the Tales from the Shadows podcast, a podcast about folklore and fairy tales. I'm Emily, and I'm going to tell you a story. A very happy Halloween to all of you. This is the third episode released in October, released right at the end of October. And I've got something a little bit different today. I'm going to be telling you the tale of The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde. And I had thought about retelling this story, but I love Wilde's language and humour so much that instead of my retelling, I'm going to actually be reading you Wilde's work. I hope you will bear with me with the slight departure from the norm. But it is Halloween after all, and if there's a time to depart from the norm, is there any time better than All Hallows' Eve? So without any further ado, I give you The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde. When Mr. Harlem B. Otis, an American minister, bought Canterville Chase, everyone told him he was doing a foolish thing, as there was no doubt at all that the place was haunted. Indeed, Lord Canterville himself, a man of most punctilious honour, felt it his duty to mention the fact to Mr. Otis when they came to discuss terms. We have not cared to live in the place ourselves, said Lord Canterville, since my grand-aunt, the Dowager Duchess of Bolton, was frightened into a fit from which she never really recovered by two skeletal hands being placed on her shoulders as she was dressing for dinner. And I feel bound to tell you, Mr. Otis, that the ghost has been seen by several living members of my family, as well as by the rector of the parish, Mr. Reverend August Damper, who is a fellow of the King's College, Cambridge. After the unfortunate incident to the Duchess, none of the younger servants would stay with us, and Lady Canterville often got very little sleep at night in consequence of the mysterious noises coming from the corridor and the library. My lord, said the minister, I will take the furniture and the ghost at valuation. I have come from a modern country, where we have everything money can buy. And with all our spry young fellows painting the old world red and carrying off your best actors and prima donnas, I reckon that if there were such a thing as a ghost in Europe, we'd have brought it home in a very short time for one of our public museums or on a road show. I fear that the ghost exists, said Lord Canterville, smiling, though it may have resisted the overtures of your enterprising impersonados. It has been very well known for three centuries, since 1584, in fact, and always makes its appearance before the death of any member of our family. Well, so does the family doctor, for that matter, Lord Canterville. But there is no such thing, sir, as a ghost, and I guess the laws of nature are not going to be suspended for the British aristocracy. You are certainly very natural in America answered Lord Canterville, who did not quite understand Mr. Otis's last observation. And if you don't mind having a ghost in the house, it is all right. Only you must remember that I did warn you. A few weeks after this purchase was concluded, and at the close of the season, the minister and his family went down to Canterville Chase. Mrs. Otis, who, as Mrs. Lucretia R. Tamplin, of West 53rd Street, had been a celebrated New York belle, was now a very handsome middle-aged woman, with fine eyes and a superb profile. 
Many American ladies, on leaving their native land, adopt an appearance of chronic ill health under the impression that it is a form of European refinement. But Mrs. Otis had never fallen to that error. She had a magnificent constitution and a wonderful amount of animal spirits. Indeed, in many respects, she was quite English and was an excellent example of the fact that we really have everything in common with the Americans nowadays, except, of course, the language. Her eldest son, christened Washington by his parents in a moment of patriotism, which he had never ceased to regret, was a fair-haired, rather good-looking young man who had qualified himself for American diplomacy by leading the German at Newport Casino for three successive seasons, and even in London was well known as an excellent dancer. Gardenias and the peerage were his only weakness. Otherwise, he was extremely sensible. Miss Virginia E. Otis, a little girl of fifteen, lithe and lovely as a fawn, and with a freedom in her large blue eyes. She was a wonderful Amazon, and had once raced old Lord Bilton on her pony twice round the park, winning by a length and a half just in front of the Achilles statue, to the huge delight of the young Duke of Cheshire, who had proposed to her on the spot, and been sent back to Eton that very night by his guardian in floods of tears. After Virginia came the twins, who were usually called the Stars and Stripes, as they were always getting squished. They were delightful boys, and, with the exception of the worthy minister, the only true Republicans in the family. As Cantville Chase is seven miles from Ascot, the nearest railway station, Mr Otis had telegraphed for a wagonette to meet them, and they started on their drive in high spirits. It was a lovely July evening, and the air was delicately scented with pine wood. Now and then they heard a wood pigeon brooding over its own sweet voice, or saw, deep in the rustling fern, the burnished breast of a pheasant. Little squirrels peered at them from the beech trees as they went, and the rabbits scurried away through the beech wood and over the grassy knoll with their little white tails in the air. As they suddenly entered the avenue of Canterville Chase, however, the sky suddenly became overcast with clouds, and a curious stillness seemed to hold the atmosphere. A great flight of rooks passed silently over their heads, and before they reached the house, some big drops of rain had fallen. Standing on the steps to receive them was an old woman, neatly dressed in black silk, with a white cap and apron. This was Mrs. Eumenity, the housekeeper, whom Mrs. Otis, at Lady Canterville's earnest request, had consented to keep in her former position. She made them each a low curtsy as they alighted, and in a quaint, old-fashioned manner, I bid you welcome to Canterville Chase. Following her, they passed through the fine Tudor Hall into the library, a low, long room, panelled in black oak, at the end of which was a large stained-glass window. Here they found tea laid out for them, and, after taking off the wraps, they sat down and began to look around, while Mrs. Eumenity waited upon them. Suddenly, Mrs. Otis caught sight of a dull red stain on the floor by the fireplace, and quite unconscious as to what it really signified, said to Mrs. Eumenity, I'm afraid something has been spilt there. Yes, madam, replied the housekeeper in a low voice. Blood 
has been spilt on that spot. Oh, how horrid, cried Mrs. Otis. I don't care for bloodstains in the sitting room. It must be removed at once. The old woman smiled and answered in the same low, mysterious voice. It is the blood of Lady Eleanor de Canterville, who was murdered on that very spot by her husband, Sir Simon de Canterville, in 1575. Sir Simon survived her nine years and disappeared suddenly under very mysterious circumstances. His body has never been discovered, but his guilty spirit still haunts the chase. The bloodstain has been admired by tourists and others and cannot be removed. That's all nonsense, cried Washington Otis. Pinkerton's champion stain remover and purgent detergent will clear up this in no time and before the terrified housekeeper could interfere, he'd fallen upon his knees and was rapidly scouring the floor with a small stick of what looked like black cosmetic. In a few moments, no trace of the bloodstain could be seen. I knew Pinkerton would do it, he exclaimed triumphantly, as he looked round at his admiring family. But no sooner had he said the words than a terrible flash of lightning lit up the sombre room. A fearful peal of thunder made them all stand to their feet, and Mrs. Eumenity fainted. What a monstrous climate, said the American minister calmly, as he lit a long cheroot. I guess the old country is so overpopulated that they have not enough decent weather for everyone. I have always been of the opinion that emigration is the only thing for England. Oh, my dear Harmon, said Mrs. Otis, what can we do with a woman who faints? Charge it to her like breakages said the minister. She won't faint after that. And in a few moments, Mrs. Eumenity certainly came too. There was no doubt, however, that she was extremely upset, and she sternly warned Mr. Otis to beware of some trouble coming to the house. I have seen it with my own eyes, sir, she said. That would make any Christian's hair turn white on its end. And many, many nights... I have not closed my eyes for sleep for the awful things that are done here. Mr. Otis, however, and his wife warmly assured the honest soul that they were not afraid of ghosts, and after invoking the blessing of the province on her new master and mistress and making arrangements for an increase in salary, the old housekeeper tottered off to her own room. The storm raged fiercely all that night. Nothing of particular note occurred. In the morning, however, they came down to breakfast and found the terrible stain once again upon the floor. I don't think it can be the fault of Pinkerton's detergent, said Washington, for I have tried it on everything. It must be the ghost. He accordingly rubbed out the stain a second time, but the second morning it appeared again. The third morning also it was there though the library had been locked up at night by Mr. Otis himself, and the key carried upstairs. The whole family were now quite interested. Mr. Otis began to suspect that he had been a little too dogmatic in his denial of the existence of ghosts. Mrs. Otis expressed her interest in joining a psychical society, and Washington prepared a long letter to the Messrs. Meyer and Podmore on the subject of the permanence of sanguineous stains when connected with crime. 
that night all doubt about the subject, about the existence of the phantasm, were removed forever. The day had been warm and sunny, and in the cool of the evening the whole family went out for a drive. They did not return till nine o'clock, where they had a light supper. The conversation in no way turned upon ghosts, so there were not even those primary conditions of receptive expectations which so often precede presentations of psychical phenomena. The subjects discussed, as I have learned from Mr. Otis, were merely such as a form of ordinary conversation of cultivated Americans of the better class, such as the immense superiority of Fanny Devonport over Sarah Bernhardt as an actress, the difficulties in obtaining green corn, buckwheat cakes, and homonity even in the best English houses, and the importance of Boston in the developing of the world soul, the advantages of baggage-check systems in railway travelling, and the sweetness of the New York accent when compared to the London draw. No mention at all was made of the supernatural, nor of Sir Simon de Canterville was there any allusion in any way. At eleven o'clock the family retired, and by half-past all lights were out. Sometime after, Mr. Otis was awakened by a curious noise in the corridor outside his room. It sounded like the clank of metal and seemed to be coming nearer at every moment. He got up at once and struck a match and looked at the time. It was exactly one o'clock. He was quite calm, and he felt his pulse, which was in no way at all feverish. The strange noise continued, and with it he heard the distinctive sound of footsteps. He put on his slippers, obtained a long file out of his dressing case, and opened the door. Right in front of him he saw in the wan moonlight. An old man of terrible aspect. His eyes were burning coals. Long grey hair fell over his shoulders, matted in coils. His garments, which were of an anti-cut, were soiled and ragged, and from his wrists and ankles hung heavy manacles and rusted greaves. My dear sir, Mr Otis said, I really must insist on you all in those chains. I have brought you for that purpose a little bottle of Tamsie's Rising Sun Lubricant. It is said to be completely efficacious upon application, and there are several testimonials to that effect upon the wrapper from some of our most eminent native divines. I shall leave it here for you by the bedroom candle, and I will happily supply you with more should you require it. And with those words, the United States Minister laid down the bottle upon the marble table and, closing his door, retired to rest. For a moment, the Canterville ghost stood quite motionless in natural indignation. Then, dashing the bottle violently upon the polished floor, he fled down the corridor, uttering horrible groans and emanating a ghastly green light. However, as he reached the top of the great oak staircase, a door was flung open and two little white-robed figures appeared and a large pillow whizzed past his head. There was evidently no time to be lost so hastily adopting the fourth dimension of space as a means of escape he vanished through the wainscoting and the house became quiet. On reaching a little secret chamber in the left wing he leaned up against a moonbeam to recover his breath and began to try and realise his position. Never, in a brilliant and uninterrupted career of three hundred years, had he been so grossly insulted.
he thought of the dowager duchess, whom he had frightened into a fit as she stood before her glass in her lace and her diamonds, of the four housemaids who had gone into hysterics when he merely grinned at them through the curtain of one of the spare bedrooms, of the rector of the parish, whose candle he had blown out when he was coming in late one night to the library, and who had ever since been under the care of Sir William Gull, a perfect martyr to nervous disorders, and of old Madame de Tremulac, who, having wakened up one morning early and seen a skeleton seated in an armchair by the fire reading her diary, had been confined to her bed for six weeks with an attack of brain fever, and on her recovery had become reconciled to the church and broken of her connections with that notorious sceptic, Monsieur Voltaire. He remembered the terrible night when wicked Lord Canterville was found choking in his dressing-room with a knave of diamonds halfway down his throat and confessed, just before he died, to having cheated Charles James Fox out of £50,000 at Coxfolds by means of that very same card and swore that the ghost had made him swallow it. All his great achievements came back to him again from the butler who had shot himself in the pantry because he had seen a green hand tapping at the windowpane, to the beautiful Lady Stutterfield, who was forever obliged to wear a black velvet band about her throat to hide the mark of five fingers burnt upon her white skin, and who drove herself at last into the carp pond at the end of King's Walk. With the enthusiastic egoism of the true artist, he went over his most celebrated performances and smiled bitterly to himself as he recalled his last appearance as Red Rupert or The Strangled Babe, his debut as Gaunt Garson, the bloodsucker of Bexley Moor, and the fumor he had experienced one lovely June evening merely by playing ninepins with some of his own bones upon the tennis lawn. And after all this, some wretched modern Americans were to come and to offer him Rising Sun's lubricator and throw pillows at his head. Oh, it was quite unbearable. Besides, no ghost in history had ever been treated in such a manner. Accordingly, he determined to have vengeance and remained till daylight in an attitude of deep thought. The next morning, when the Otis family met for breakfast, they discussed the ghost at great length. The United States minister was naturally a little annoyed to find his presence had not been accepted. I have no wish, he said, to do the ghost any personal injury, and I must say that, considering the length of time he has been in the house, I do not think it is at all polite to throw pillows at him. A very just remark, at which I am sorry to say the two twins burst out in shouts of laughter. Upon the other hand, he continued, if he really does decline to use the Rising Sun's lubricant, we will have to take his chains from him. It will be quite impossible to sleep with such a noise going on right outside our bedrooms. For the rest of the week, however, they were undisturbed, the only thing that excited any attention being the continual renewal of the bloodstain on the library floor. This certainly was very strange, as the door was always locked at night by Mr. Otis, and the window kept closely barred. The chameleon-like colour, also, 
of the stain excited a good deal of comment. Some mornings it was a dull, almost Indian red. Then it would be vermilion, a rich purple. And once they came down from family prayers, according to the simple rites of the free American Reformed Episcopalian Church, they found it bright emerald green. These kaleidoscopic changes naturally amused the party very much, and bets of the subject were freely made every evening. The only person who did not enter into the joke was little Virginia, who, for some unexplained reason, was always a good deal distressed at the sight of the bloodstain, and very nearly cried the morning it was emerald green. The second appearance of the ghost was on Sunday night. Shortly after they had gone to bed, they were suddenly alarmed by a fearful crash from the hall. Rushing downstairs, they found a large old suit of armour had been detached from its stand and fallen on the stone floor, while seated in a high-backed chair was the Canterville ghost, rubbing his knees with an expression of acute agony on his face. The twins, having brought their pea-shooters with them, at once discharged two pellets of him, with accuracy of aim which can only be attended by long and careful practice on a writing-master and the United States minister covered him with his revolver, and called upon him, in accordance with Californian etiquette, to hold up his hands. The ghost started up with a wild shriek of rage, and swept through them like a mist, extinguishing Washington Otis's candle as he passed, and soon leaving them in total darkness. On reaching the top of the stairs, he recovered himself, and determined to give his celebrated peal of demonic laughter. This he had on more than one occasion found extremely useful. It was said to have turned Lord Rake's wig grey in a single night, and it had certainly made three of Lady Canterville's French governesses give warning before the month was up. Accordingly, he laughed his most horrible laugh, till the old vaulted roof rang and rang, but hardly had the fearful echoes died away when a door opened and Mrs. Otis came out in a light blue dressing gown. I'm afraid you are far from well, she said, and I have brought you a d bottle of Dr. Doorbell's tincture. If it's indigestion you have, you will find it a most excellent remedy. The ghost glared at her in fury, and began at once to make preparations for turning himself into a large black dog, an accomplishment for which he was justly renowned and to which the family doctor always attributed the permanent idiocy of Lord Canterville's uncle, the Honourable Thomas Horton. The sound of approaching footsteps, however, made him hesitate in his foul purpose, so he contented himself with becoming faintly phosphorescent, and vanishing with a churchyard groan, just as the twins had come upon him. On reaching his room, he entirely broke down, and became a prey to the most violent agitation. The vulgarity of the twins, the gross materialism of Mrs. Otis, were naturally extremely annoying, but what really distressed him most was that he had been unable to wear the suit of mail. He had hoped that even modern Americans would be thrilled by the sight of a spectre in Armin, if for no more sensible reason at least out of respect for their natural poet, Longfellow, over whose graceful and attractive poetry he himself had whiled away many a weary hour when the Cantervilles were up in town. Besides, it was his own suit, 
he had worn it with great success at the Kentwell tournament, and it had been highly complimented upon by no less person than the Virgin Queen herself. Yet, when he put it on, he had been completely overpowered by the weight of the huge breastplate and the steel cascade, and had fallen heavily upon the stone pavement, barking both his knees severely and bruising the knuckles of his right hand. For some days he was extremely ill, and hardly dared stir out of his room at all, except to keep the bloodstain in proper repair. However, by taking great care of himself he recovered, and resolved to make a third attempt to frighten the United States minister and his family. He selected Friday, August 17th, for his appearance, and spent most of the day looking over his wardrobe, ultimately deciding on a large sloshed hat with a red feather and a winding sheet frilled at the neck and wrists, and a rusty dagger. Towards evening, a violent storm of rain came on, and the wind was so high that all the windows and doors of the old house shook and rattled. In fact, it was just the weather he loved. His plan of action was this. He was to make his way quietly to Washington Otis's room, gibber at him from the foot of the bed, and then stab himself in the throat three times to the sound of low music. He bore Washington a special grudge, being quite aware that it was he who was in the habit of removing the famous Canterville bloodstain by the means of Pinkerton's purgent detergent. Having reduced the reckless and foolhardy youth to a condition of abject terror, he would then proceed to the room occupied by the United States minister and his wife, there to place a clammy hand on Mrs. Otis's forehead, while he hissed into her trembling husband's ear awful secrets of the charnel house. With regard to little Virginia, he had not quite made up his mind. She had never insulted him in any way, and was pretty and gentle. A few hollow groans from the wardrobe, he thought, would be more than sufficient, and if that failed to wake her, he might gabble at the counterpane with palsy-twitching fingers. As for the twins, well, he was quite determined to teach them a lesson. The first thing to be done was, of course, to sit upon their chests so as to produce a stifling sensation of nightmare. Then, as their beds were quite close to each other, to stand between them in the form of a green, icy-cold corpse, till they became paralysed with fear, and finally, to throw off the winding-sheet and crawl around the groom with white, bleached bones and rolling eyeballs, in the character of Dumb Daniel, or the Suicide's Skeleton, a role which he had more than one occasion produced to great effect, and which he considered to be quite the equal to his famous part of Martin the Maniac, or the Masked Mystery. At half-past ten, he heard the family going to bed. For some time, he was disturbed by wild shrieks of laughter from the twins, who, with light-hearted gaiety of schoolboys, were evidently amusing themselves before they retired to rest. But by a quarter past eleven all was still, and, as midnight sounded, he sallied forth. The owl beat against the window pane, the raven croaked from the old yew tree, 
and the wind wandered moaning around the house like the sound of a lost soul. But the Otis family slept unconscious of their doom. And high above the rain and the storm, he could hear the steady snoring of the Minister of the United States. He stepped stealthily out of the wainscoting, an evil smile on his cruel, wrinkled mouth, and the moon hit her face in a cloud as he stole past the great oral window, where his own arms and those of his murdered wife were emblazoned in azure and gold. On and on he glided like an evil shadow. The very darkness seemed to loathe him as he passed. Once he thought he heard something call and stopped, but it was only the baying of a dog from the Red Farm, and he went on, muttering strange sixteenth-century curses, and ever and anon brandishing the rusty dagger in the midnight air. Finally, he reached the corridor of the passage where lurked the luckless Washington's room. For a moment he paused there, the wind blowing his long grey locks about his head and twisting into grotesque and fantastic folds the nameless horror of the dead man's shroud. Then the clock struck the quarter, and he felt the time was come. He chuckled to himself and turned the corner, but no sooner had he done so, than with a piteous wail of terror he fell back and hid his blanched face in long bony hands. Right in front of him was standing a horrible spectre, motionless as a craven image and monstrous as a madman's dream. Its head was bald and burnished, its face round and fat and white, and a hideous laughter seemed to have wrinkled its features into an eternal grim. From its eyes streamed rays of scarlet light, its mouth a wide well of fire, and its hideous garment, like his own, swathed with its silent snows, the titan form. On its breast was a placard, with strange writing in antique characters, some scrawl of shame, it seemed, some record of wild sins, some awful calendar of crime, and with its right hand it bore aloft a falcon of gleaming steel. Never having seen a ghost before, he naturally was terribly frightened, and after a second's hasty glance at the awful phantom, he fled back to his room, tripping upon his long winding sheet as he sped down the corridor and finally dropping the rusty dagger into one of the minister's jackboots, where it was found in the morning by the butler. Once in the privacy of his own apartment, he flung himself down upon a small pallet bed and hid his face under the clothes. After time, however, the brave old cantable spirit asserted itself and he determined to go and speak to the other ghost as soon as it was daylight. Accordingly, just as dawn was touching the hills with silver, he returned toward the spot where he had first laid eyes on the grisly phantom, feeling that, after all, two ghosts were better than one, and that, by aid of his new friend, he might safely grapple with the twins. On reaching the spot, however, a terrible sight met his gaze. Something had evidently happened to the spectre, for the light had entirely faded from its hollowed eyes. The gleaming falcon had fallen from its hand, 
and it was leaning up against the wall in a strained and uncomfortable attitude. He rushed forward and seized it in his arms when, to his horror, the head slipped off and rolled on the floor. The body assumed a recumbent posture, and he found himself clasping a white dimity bed curtain with a sweeping brush, a kitchen cleaver, and a hollow turnip lining at his feet. Unable to understand this curious transformation, he clutched the placard with feverish haste, and there, in the grey morning light, he read these fearful words. Ye Otest Ghost, ye only true and original spook, beware of ye imitations, all others are counterfeit. The whole thing flashed across him. He had been tricked, foiled, outwitted. The old Canterville look came across his eyes. He ground his toothless gums together and, raising his withered hands high above his head, swore accordingly to the picturesque phraseology of the amateur school that when Chanticleer sounded twice his merry horn, deeds of blood would be wrought and murder walk abroad on silent feet. Hardly had he finished this awful oath when, from red-tiled roof of a distant homestead, a cock crew. He laughed a long, low, brittle laugh and waited. Hour after hour he waited, but the cock, for some strange reason, did not crow again. Finally, at half-past seven, the arrival of the housemaids made him give up his fearful vigil, and he stalked back to his room, thinking of his vain oath and baffled purpose. There he consulted several books on ancient chivalry, of which he was exceedingly fond, and found that, on every occasion that the oath was used, Chanticleer had always crowed a second time. Prediction seize the naughty fowl, he muttered. I have seen the day when, with my stout spear, I would run him through the gourd, and made him crow from me t'were in death. He then retired to a comfortable lead coffin and stayed there till evening. The next day the ghost was very weak and tired. The terrible excitement of the last four weeks was beginning to have its effect. His nerves were completely shattered. He startled at the slightest noise. For five days he kept to his room and made up his mind to give up the bloodstain on the library floor. If the Otis family did not want it, they clearly did not deserve it. They were evidently people of a low material plane of existence and quite incapable of appreciating the symbolic value of a sensuous phenomena. The question of phantasmic appearances and the development of the astral body was of course quite a different matter and not really under his control. It was his sole duty to appear in the corridor at least once a week and to gibber at the large oral window on the first and third Wednesdays of every month, and he did not see how he could honourably escape the obligation. It was true that his life had been very evil, but, on the other hand, he was most conscientious in all things supernatural. For the next three Sundays, accordingly, he traversed the corridor as usual between midnight and three o'clock, taking every precaution against being seen or heard. He removed his boots, 
trod as lightly as possible upon the worm-eaten boards, and wore a large black velvet cloak, and was careful to use the rising sun's lubrication for oiling his chains. I am bound to acknowledge that it was with a good deal of difficulty brought himself to adopt this last mode of protection. However, one night, while the family were at dinner, he slipped into Mr. Otis's bedroom and carried off the bottle. He felt a little humiliated at first, but afterwards was sensible enough to see that there was a great deal to be said for the invention. And, to a certain degree, it served his purpose. Still, in spite of everything, he was not left unmolested. Strings were continuously being stretched across the corridor, over which he tripped in the dark, and on one occasion, while dressed in the part of Black Isaac, or the huntsman of Hodley Woods, he met with a severe fall through treading on a butterslide which the twins had concocted for the entrance to the tapestry chamber at the top of the oak staircase. This last insult so enraged him that he resolved to make a final effort to assert his dignity and social position and determined to visit the insolent young Etonians the next night in his celebrated character of Red Rupert, the Headless Earl. He had not appeared in this disguise for more than seventy years. In fact, not since he had so frightened pretty lady Barbara Modish by means of it that she suddenly broke off her engagement to the present Lord Cantwell's grandfather that she ran away to Gretna Green with handsome Jack Castletown, declaring that nothing in the world would induce her to marry into a family that allowed such a horrible phantom to walk up and down the terrace at twilight. Poor Jack was afterwards shot in a duel by Lord Canterville on Wandsworth Common, and Lady Barbara died of a broken heart at Tunbridge Well before the year was out. So in every way, it had been a great success. It was, however, extremely difficult to make up, if I may use such a theatrical expression in connection with one of the greatest mysteries of the supernatural, or to employ a more scientific term, the higher natural world and it took him fully three hours to make his preparation. At last everything was ready, and he was pleased with his appearance. The big leather riding boots that went with the dress were just a little too large for him, and he could only find one of the horse pistols, but, on the whole, he was quite satisfied, and at quarter past one he glided out of the wainscottings and crept down the corridor. On reaching the room occupied by the twins, which I should mention was called the Blue Bedchamber, on account of its wall hangings, he found the door just ajar. Wishing to make an effective entrance, he flung it wide open, when a heavy jug of water fell down on him, wetting him quite to the skin, and just missing his left shoulder by a couple of inches. At the same moment, he heard stifled shrieks of laughter proceeding from the four-poster bed. The shock to his nervous system was so great that he fled back to his room as hard as he could go, and the next day he was laid up with a severe cold. The only thing that consoled him in the whole affair was the fact that he had not brought his head with him, for if he had done so, the consequences might have been very serious. Now he gave up all hope of ever frightening the rude American family, and contented himself, as a rule, with creeping through the passages in list slippers, 
with a thick red muffler about his throat for fear of draughts, and a small aquabus, in case he should be attacked by the twins. The final blow he received occurred on the 16th of September. He had gone downstairs to the great entrance hall, feeling sure that there, at any rate, he would be quite unmolested, and was amusing himself with making satirical remarks upon the large Sarani photographs of the American minister and his wife which had now taken place of the Canterville family pictures. He was simply but neatly clad in a long shroud, spotted with churchyard mould, and had tied up his jaw with a strip of yellow ribbon, and was carrying a lantern and a sexton's spade. In fact, he was dressed as the character of Jonah the Graveless, or the corpse snatcher of Kirstney Barn, one of his most remarkable impersonations, and one which the Cantervilles had every reason to remember, as it was the real origin of their quarrel with their neighbour, Lord Rutherford. It was about quarter past two o'clock in the morning, and as far as he could ascertain, no one was stirring. As he strode towards the library, however, to see if there was any trace left of the bloodstain, suddenly there leaped out at him from a dark corner two figures, waving their arms wildly above their heads and shrieking out, Boo! in his ears. Seized with panic, which, under the circumstances, was only natural, he rushed for the staircase, but found Washington Otis waiting for him there with a big green syringe, and thus hemmed in by his enemies on every side, and driven almost to bay, he vanished through the great iron stove, which, fortunately for him, was not lit, and had to make his way home through the fuses and chimneys, arriving in his own room in a terrible state of dirt, disorder and despair. After that he was not seen again on any nocturnal expeditions. The twins lay in wait for him on several occasions, and strewed the passages with nutshells every night to the great annoyance of their parents and the servants, but it was to no avail. It was quite evident that his feelings were so wounded that he would not appear. Mr Otis consequently resumed his great work on the history of the Democratic Party, on which he had become engaged for several years. Mrs Otis organised a wonderful clam bake, which amazed the whole county. The boys took to lacrosse, poker, and other American national games, and Virginia rode about the lanes on her pony, accompanied by the young Duke of Cheshire, who had come to spend the last weeks of his holiday at Canterville Chase. It was generally assumed that the ghost had gone away, and in fact Mr Otis wrote a letter to this effect to Lord Canterville, who, in reply, expressed his great pleasure at the news, and sent his best congratulations to the minister's worthy wife. The Otises, however, were deceived, for the ghost was still in the house, and, though now almost an invalid, was by no means ready to let the matter rest, particularly when he heard that among the guests was the young Duke of Cheshire, whose grand-uncle, Lord Francis Stilton, had once bet a hundred guineas to Colonel Canterbury that he would play dice with the Canterville ghost, and was found the next morning lying on the floor of the card room in such a helpless, paralytic state that, though he lived on to a great age, he was never able to say anything again but double sixes. The story was well known at the time, though, of course, out of respect for the feelings of the two noble families, every attempt was made to hush it up and a full account of all the circumstances connected with it will be found in the third volume of Lord Ratley's 
recollections of the prince regent and his friends. The ghost, then, was naturally very anxious to show that he had not lost his influence over the Stiltons, with whom, indeed, he was distantly connected, his own first cousin having been married, un seconds notons, to Sir de Berkeley, from whom, as everyone knows, the Dukes of Cheshire's are linearly descended. Accordingly, he made arrangements for appearing to Virginia's little lover in his celebrated impersonata of the Vampire Monk, or Bloodless Benedictine, a performance so horrible that when old Lady Stirrup saw it, which she did one fateful New Year's Eve in the year 1764, she went off into the most piercing shrieks which culminated in violent epilepsy and died in three days after disinheriting the Cantervilles, who were her nearest relations, and leaving all her money to a London apothecary. At the last moment, however, his terror of the twins prevented his leaving his room, and the little duke slept in peace under a great feathered canopy in the royal bedchamber and dreamed of Virginia. A few days after this, Virginia and her curly-haired cavalier went out rioting on Brockley Meadow, where she tore her habit so badly getting through her head that, on returning home, she made up her mind to go up through the back staircase so as not to be seen. As she was running past the tapestry chamber, the door of which happened to be opened, she fancied she saw someone inside, and thinking it was her mother's maid, who sometimes used to bring her work there, looked in to ask her if she could help mend her habit. To her immense surprise, however, it was the Canterville ghost himself. He was sitting by the window, watching the ruined gold of yellowing trees fly through the air and the red leaves dancing madly down the long avenue. His head was leaning in his hands and his whole attitude was one of extreme depression. Indeed, so forlorn and so much out of repair did he look that little Virginia, whose first idea had been to run away and lock herself in her room, was filled with pity and determined to try and comfort him. So light was her footfall, and so deep his melancholy, that he was not aware of her presence till she spoke to him. I am so sorry for you, she said, but my brothers are going back to Eton tomorrow, and then, if you behave yourself, no one will annoy you. It is absurd asking me to behave myself, he answered, looking round in astonishment at the pretty little girl who had ventured to address him. Quite absurd. I must rattle my chains and groan through keyholes and walk about at night, if that's what you mean. It is my only reason for existing. It's no reason at all for existing. And, you know, you've been very wicked. Mrs. Humanity told us the first day we arrived that you killed your wife. Well, I quite admit it, said the ghost petulantly. But it was purely a family matter and of no concern to anyone else. It is very wrong to kill anyone, said Virginia, who at times had a sweet Puritan gravity, caught from some old New England ancestor. Oh, I hate the cheap severity of abstract ethics. My wife was very plain, never had my ruff properly starched, and knew nothing about cookery. Why, there was a buck I had shot on Hogley Wood a magnificent packet, and do you know how she had it sent to the table? 
However, it is of no matter now, but is all over, and I don't think it was very nice of her brothers to starve me to death, though I did kill her. Starve you to death? Oh, Mr. Ghost, I mean, Sir Simon, are you hungry? I have a sandwich in my case. Would you like it? No, thank you. I never eat anything now, but it is very kind of you, all the same. You're much nicer than the rest of your horrid, rude, vulgar, dishonest family. Stop! cried Virginia, stamping her foot. It is you who are rude and horrid and vulgar, and as for dishonesty, you know you stole the paints out of my box to try and furbish up that ridiculous bloodstain in the library. First you took all my reds, including vermilion, and I couldn't do any more sunsets, and then you took the emerald green and the chrome yellow, and finally I had nothing left but indigo and Chinese white, and I could do nothing but moonlight scenes, which are always depressing to look at, and not at all easy to paint. I never told on you, though I was very much annoyed. And it was the most ridiculous thing. Who ever heard of emerald green blood? Well, really, said the ghost rather meekly, what was I to do? It was a very difficult thing to get real blood nowadays. And, as your brother began it all with his Pinkerton's detergent, I saw no reason why I should not have your paints. As for the colour, well, that is a matter of taste. Cantervilles have blue blood, for instance, the very bluest in England. But I know you Americans don't really care for such things. You know nothing about it. And the best thing you can do is to immigrate and improve your mind. My father will be only too happy to give you free passage, and though it's a very heavy duty on spirits of every kind, there will be no difficulty about it at the Custom House, as the officers are all Democrats. Once in New York, you're sure to be a great success. I know a lot of people who will give a hundred thousand dollars to have a grandfather, and much more to have a family ghost. I do not think I should like America. I suppose because we have no ruins and no curiosities, said Virginia sarcastically. No ruins? No curiosities? answered the ghost. You have your navy and your manners. Good evening, then. I will go and ask Papa to get the twins an extra two weeks' holiday. Please don't go, Miss Virginia, he cried. I am so very lonely and so unhappy and I really don't know what to do. I want to go to sleep, and I cannot. That's quite absurd. You merely go to bed and blow out the candle. It's very difficult sometimes to stay awake, especially at church, but there is no difficulty at all about sleeping. Why, even babies do that, and they're not very clever. I have not slept for three hundred years, he said sadly, and Virginia's beautiful blue eyes softened in wonder. For three hundred years I have not slept, and I am so tired. Virginia grew quite grave, and her little lips trembled like rose leaves. She came towards him, and kneeling down by his side, looked up at his old withered face. Poor, poor ghost, she mumbled. Have you no place where you can sleep? Far away beyond the pine woods, he answered in a low, dreamy voice. There is a little garden. There is grass grows long and deep, and there are white stars of hemlock flowers. There the nightingale sings all night long. All night long she sings, 
and the cold crystal moon looks down, and the yew tree spreads out its great arms over the sleepers. Virginia's eyes grew dim with tears, and she hid her face in her hands. You mean the garden of death, she whispered. Yes, death. Death must be so beautiful. To lie in soft brown earth, with grasses weaving over one's head, and listen to silence. To have no yesterday, and no tomorrow. To forget time, to forget life, to be at peace. You can help me. You can open for me the portal of death's house. For love is always with you, and love is stronger than death is. Virginia trembled, a cold shudder running through her, and for a few moments there was silence. She felt as if she was in a terrible dream. Then the ghost spoke again, and his voice sounded like the sighing of wind. Have you ever read the old prophecy on the library window? Oh, often, cried the little girl, looking up. I know it quite well. It is painted in curious black letters, and it is difficult to read. There are only six lines. When golden girl can win, prayers from lips of sin. When the barren almond bears, and a little child gives away its tears, then all the house shall be still, and peace will come to Canterville. But I don't know what it means. They mean, he said sadly, that you must weep with me for my sins, because I have no tears, and pray with me for my soul, because I have no faith. And then, if you have always been sweet and good and gentle, the angel of death will have mercy on me. You will see fearful shapes in the darkness, and wicked voices whispering in your ear, but they will not harm you, for against the purity of a little child the powers of hell cannot prevail. Virginia made no answer, and the ghost wrung his hands in wild despair as he looked upon her bowed golden head. Suddenly she stood up very pale and with a strange light in her eyes. I am not afraid, she said firmly, and I will ask the angel to have mercy on you. He rose from his seat with a faint cry of joy, and taking her hand with old-fashioned grace bent over and kissed it. His fingers were cold as ice, and his lips burnt like fire, but Virginia did not falter as he led her across the dusky room. On a faded green tapestry were embroidered little huntsmen. They blew their tasseled horns and waved their tiny hands at her to go back. Go back, Virginia! Little Virginia! They cried, go back! But the ghost clutched her hands more tightly, and she shut her eyes to them. Horrible animals with lizards' tails and goggling eyes blinked at her from the carved chimney and murmured, Beware, little Virginia, beware, we may never see you again. But the ghost glided more swiftly, and Virginia did not listen. When they reached the end of the room, he stopped, and murmured some word she could not understand. She opened her eyes and saw the wall slowly fading away like mist, and a great black cavern in front of her. A bitter cold wind swept around them, and she felt something pulling at her dress. Quick, quick, cried the ghost, or it will be too late. And in a moment, the wainscoting had closed behind them, and the tapestry chamber was empty.
about ten minutes later, the bell rang for tea, and as Virginia did not come down, Mrs. Otis sent up one of the footmen to tell her. After a little time, he returned and said he could not find Miss Virginia anywhere. As she was in the habit of going out into the garden every evening to get flowers for the dinner table, Mrs. Otis was not alarmed at first. But then six o'clock struck, and Virginia did not appear, and she became really agitated, and sent the boys out to look for her, while she herself and Mr. Otis searched every room in the house. At half-past six the boys came back and said that they could find no trace of their sister anywhere. They were all now in the greatest state of excitement, and did not know what to do, when Mr. Otis suddenly remembered that, some days before, he had given a band of gypsies permission to camp in the park. He accordingly set off at once to Black Hell Hollow, where he knew they were, accompanied by his eldest son and two farmhands. The little Duke of Cheshire, who was perfectly frantic with anxiety, begged to be allowed to follow too, but Mr. Otis would not allow him, as he was afraid there might be a scuffle. On arriving at the spot, however, he found the gypsies had gone, and it was evident from their departure that it had been rather sudden, as the fire was still burning, and some of the plates were lying on the grass. He sent off Washington and two men to scour the district. He ran home and dispatched a telegram to all police inspectors in the county, telling them to be on the lookout for a little girl who had been kidnapped by a tramp or a gypsy. He then ordered his horse to be brought round, and after insisting that his wife and the three boys sit down to dinner, rode off down the Ascot Road with the groom. He had hardly, however, gone a couple of miles when he heard someone galloping after him and looked round and saw the little duke coming up on his pony, his face very flushed and no hat. "'I'm awfully sorry, Mr Otis,' the boy gasped out, "'but I can't eat any dinner as long as Virginia is lost. "'Please don't be angry with me. "'If you had let us be engaged last year, "'there would never have been all this trouble. "'You won't send me back, will you? "'I can't go. I won't go!' The minister could not help but smiling at the young, handsome scapegrace, and was a good deal touched by his devotion to Virginia, so, leaning down from his horse, patted him kindly on the shoulders and said, Well, Cyril, if you won't go back, I suppose you must come with me, but we must get you a hat at Ascot. Oh, bother my hat! I want Virginia! cried the little duke, laughing as they galloped on to the railway station. There Mr. Ascot inquired of the stationmaster if anyone answering the description of Virginia had been seen by the platform, but could get no news of her. The stationmaster, however, wired up and down the line and assured him there was a strict watch being kept for her, and, having bought a hat for the little duke from a linen draper's, who was just putting up his shutters, Mr. Otis rode off to Bexley, a village four miles away which he was told was a well-known haunt of the gypsies, as there was a large common next to it. Here they roused up the rural policeman, but could get no information from him, and, after riding all over the commons, they turned their horse's head homewards and reached the chase at about eleven o'clock. Dead tired and almost heartbroken, they found Washington and the twins waiting for them by the gatehouse with lanterns, as the avenue was very dark. Not the slightest trace of Virginia had been discovered. The gypsies had been found on Brockley Meadow, but she was not among them, and they had explained their sudden departure by saying they had mistaken the date of Chorton Fair, and had gone off in a hurry for fear that they should be late. Indeed, they had been quite distressed on hearing of Miss Virginia's disappearance, as they were quite grateful to Mr Otis for having allowed them to camp in his park, 
and four of their number stayed behind to help in the search. The carp pond had been dredged, and the whole of the chase thoroughly gone over but without any results. It was evident that, for that night at any rate, Virginia was lost to them, and it was in a state of deep depression that Mr Otis and the boys walked up to the house, the groom following behind with the two horses and the pony. In the hall they found a group of frightened servants, and lying on the sofa in the library was poor Mrs Otis, for she had been almost out of her mind with terror and anxiety, and having her forehead bathed in eau de cologne by the old housekeeper. Mr Otis at once insisted on her having something to eat, and ordered up supper for the whole party. It was a melancholy meal. Hardly anyone spoke, and even the twins were awestruck and subdued, as they were very fond of their sister. When they had finished, Mr Otis, in spite of the entreaties from the little duke, ordered all of them to bed, saying that there was nothing more that could be done that night, and he would telegraph in the morning to Scotland Yard for some detectives to be sent down immediately. Just as they were passing out of the dining room, Midnight began to boom from the clock tower, and when the last stroke sounded, they heard a crash and a sudden shrill cry. A dreadful peal of thunder shook the house, and strange, unearthly music flooded the air. A panel at the top of the staircase flew back with a loud noise, and out on the landing, looking very pale and white, with a little casket in her hand, stepped Virginia. In a moment they had all rushed upon her, Mrs Otis clasping her passionately in her arms, the Duke smothering her with violent kisses, and the twins executing a wild war dance around the group. Good heavens, child, where have you been? said Mr Otis, rather angry, thinking that she had been playing some foolish trick on them. Cecil and I have been riding all over the county looking for you, and your mother has been frightened to death. You must never play these practical jokes any more. Except on the ghost! Except on the ghost! shrieked the twins as they capered about. My own dear darling, thank God we have found you. You must never leave my side again, murmured Mrs Otis as she kissed the trembling child and smoothed the tangle of her golden hair. Papa, said Virginia quietly, I have been with the ghost. He is dead, and you must come and see him. He had been very wicked, but he was really sorry for all that he had done and he gave me this box of jewels before he died. The whole family gazed at her in mute amazement, but she was quite grave and serious. Turning around, she led them through the opening in the wainscoting down a narrow, secret corridor. Washington followed with a lighted candle which he had caught up from the table. Finally, they came to a great oak door, studded with rusty nails. When Virginia touched it, it swung back on its heavy hinges, and they found themselves in a little low room with a vaulted ceiling and one tiny grated window. Embedded in the wall was a huge iron ring, and chained to it was a gaunt skeleton that was stretched out full length on the stone floor and seemed to be trying to grasp with its fleshless fingers at an old-fashioned trencher and ewer which had been placed just out of reach. The jug had evidently once been filled with water, and it was covered on the inside with green mould. There was nothing in the trencher but a pile of dust. Virginia knelt down by the skeleton and, folding her little hands together, began to pray silently. 
while the rest of the party looked on in wonder at the terrible tragedy whose secret had now been disclosed to them. Hallo! exclaimed one of the twins, who had been looking out of the window, trying to discover in which wing of the house they were situated. Hallo! The old withered almond tree has blossomed. I can see flowers quite plainly in the moonlight. God has forgiven him, said Virginia gravely, as she rose to her feet, and a beautiful light seemed to illuminate her face. You are an angel, cried the duke, and he put his arms around her neck and kissed her. Four days after these curious incidences, a funeral started from Canterville Chase at about eleven o'clock at night. The hearse was drawn by eight black horses, each which carried it on its head a great tuft of nodding ostrich plumes, and a lead coffin covered by rich purple pall, on which was embroidered in gold the Canterville coat of arms. By the side of the hearse and the coach walked the servants with the lighted torches, and the whole procession was wonderfully impressive. Lord Canterville was the chief mourner, having come up specially from Wales to attend the funeral, and sat in the first carriage along with little Virginia. Then came the United States Minister and his wife, then Washington and the three boys, and in the last carriage, Mrs. Humanity. It was generally felt that, as she had been frightened by the ghost for more than fifty years of her life, she had a right to see the last of him. A deep grave had been dug in the corner of the churchyard, just by the old yew tree, and the service was read in the most impressive manner by the Reverend August Dampier. When the ceremony was over, the servants, according to an old custom observed by the Canterbury family, extinguished their torches, and as the coffin was being lowered into the grave, Virginia stepped forward and laid on it a large cross made of white and pink almond blossoms. As she did so, the moon came out from behind a cloud, and a flood of silent, silver light lit the churchyard, and from a distant copse a nightingale began to sing. As she thought of the ghost's description of the Garden of Death, her eyes became dim with tears, and she hardly spoke a word during the drive home. The next morning, before Lord Canterville went up to town, Mr Otis had an interview with him on the subject of the jewels the ghosts had given Virginia. They were perfectly magnificent, especially a certain ruby necklace in an old Venetian setting, which was really a superb specimen of 16th century work, and their value was so great that Mr Otis felt considerable scruples about allowing his daughter to accept them. My lord, he said, I know that in this country Mortimer is held to apply to trinkets as well as to land, and it's quite clear to me that these jewels are, or should be, heirlooms of your family. I must beg you accordingly to take them with you to London, and to regard them simply as a portion of your property which has been restored to you under certain strange conditions. As for my daughter, she is merely a child, and has as yet, I am glad to say, but little interest in such accroutrements of idle luxury. I am also informed by Mrs. Otis, who, I may say, is no mean authority upon art, having had the privilege of spending several winters in Boston when she was a girl, that these gems are of great monetary value, and if offered at sale would fetch a tall price. Under these circumstances, Lord Canterville, 
I feel sure that you will recognise how impossible it is for me to allow them to remain in the possession of any member of my family. And indeed, such vain gods and toys, however suitable or necessary to the dignity of the British aristocracy, would be completely out of place among those who have been brought up on the severe and, I believe, immortal principles of republican simplicity. Perhaps I should mention that Virginia is very anxious that you should allow her to retain the box as a memento of your unfortunate but misguided ancestor. As it is extremely old and consequently in a good deal out of repair, you may perhaps think fit to comply with her request. For my part, I confessed, I'm a good deal surprised to find a child of mine expressing such sympathies with medievalism in any form, and can only account for it by the fact that Virginia was born in one of your London suburbs, shortly after Mrs. Otis had returned from a trip to Athens. Lord Cantival listened very gravely to the worthy minister's speech, pulling his grey moustache now and then to hide an involuntary smile. And when Mr. Otis ended, he shook him cordially by the hand and said, my dear sir, your charming little daughter rendered my unlucky ancestor, Sir Simon, a very important service, and I and my family are much in debt to her for her marvellous courage and pluck. The jewels are clearly her, and Ecad, I believe that if I were heartless enough to take her from them, the wicked oat fellow would be out of his grave in a fortnight, leading me the devil of a life. As for their being heirlooms, Nothing is an heirloom that is not mentioned in a will or a legal document, and the existence of these jewels has been quite unknown. I assure you I have no more claim on them than your butler, and when Miss Virginia grows up, I dare say she will be pleased to have pretty things to wear. Besides, you forget, Mr. Otis, that you took the furniture and the ghost at evaluation, and anything that belongs to the ghost at once passes into your possession, as whatever activity Sir Simon may have shown in the corridor at night, in a point of law, he was really dead, and you acquired his property by purchase. Mr. Otis was a good deal distressed at Lord Cantwell's refusal, and begged him to reconsider his decision, but the good-natured peer was quite firm, and finally induced the minister to allow his daughter to retain the present of, that the ghost had given her, and when, in the spring of 1890, the young Duchess of Cheshire was presented at the Queen's first drawing-room on the occasion of her marriage, her jewels were the universal theme of admiration. For Virginia received the coronet, which is the reward for all good little American girls, and was married to her boy-lover as soon as he came of age. They were both so charming, and they loved each other so much, that everyone was delighted at the match, except the old Marchioness of Dumbleton, who had tried to catch the Duke for one of her seven unmarried daughters, and had given no less than three expensive dinner parties for the purpose. And, strange to say, Mr. Otis himself. Mr. Otis was extremely fond of the young Duke personally, but, theoretically, he objected to titles, and, to use his own words, was not without apprehension lest, Amidst the intervening influence of the pleasure-loving aristocracy, the true principles of republican simplicity should be forgotten. His objection, however, 
was completely overruled, and I believe when he walked up the aisle of St George's, Hanover Square, with his daughter leaning on his arm, there was not a prouder man in the length and breadth of England. The Duke and Duchess, after the honeymoon was over, went down to Canterville Chase, and on the day after their arrival, they walked over in the afternoon to the lonely churchyard by the pine woods. They had a great deal of difficulty at first about the inscription on Sir Simon's tombstone, but finally it had been decided to engrave on it simply the initials of the old gentleman's name and the verse from the library window. The Duchess had brought with her some lovely roses which she strewn upon the grave, and after they had stood by it for some time, they strolled about the ruined chapel of the old abbey. There the Duchess sat down on a fallen pillar, while her husband lay at her feet smoking a cigarette and looking up at her beautiful eyes. Suddenly he threw the cigarette away and took hold of her hands and said to her, Virginia, a wife should have no secrets from her husband's. Dear Cecil, I have no secrets from you. Yes, you do, he answered, smiling. You have never told me what happened to you when you were locked up with the ghost. I have never told anyone, Cecil, said Virginia gravely. You know you might tell me. Please don't ask, Cecil. I cannot tell you. Poor Sir Simon. I owe him a great deal. Oh, please don't laugh, Cecil. I really do. He made me see what life is, and what death signifies, and why love is stronger than both. The Duke rose and kissed his wife lovingly. You can have your secret as long as I can have your heart, he murmured. You have always had that, Cecil. And you'll tell our children some day, won't you? Virginia blushed. And that, dear listener, is the story of the Canterville Ghost. I've linked in the episode description where you can find it on Project Gutenberg to read for yourself. I hope you enjoyed it, along with the two other spooky Halloween tales. If you have anything you'd like to say, uh, links to the social media are also in the description. I hope you have a very happy Halloween and you stay safe. Mm-hmm.